Agnostics, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good afternoon, Mike. Good afternoon, Jay. How are you doing? Well, disappointed that the uh, conference committee has said I am no longer a nominee. So well, I, you'll, you'll always but be, I'll move on. <laughs> you'll, you'll always be a nominee to me. So we have, of course, we're going to be talking about nominees and speakerships and all kinds of other stuff, the uh, conflict between Israel and Hamas and Well, there's a bunch more we're going to get to. But before we do get to anything, I want to issue, I guess I'll call it what it is, and it's an apology. Um, A few weeks ago, Jay, you and I were discussing continuing support for Ukraine, uh, especially in the context of what I believe is increasing Republican reluctance to continue on with that funding, at least in some areas of the party. I don't think you disagree with me on that. Sure. Yeah. But and, and so you made the point that you could make a, a reasonable case to conservatives for why Republicans should keep on supporting Ukraine. And I agreed it was a reasonable case, but I didn't think it was a winning message because to me, it seemed like it was out of touch with, uh, I guess I'll call the call it the increasing nativism, isolationism, and kind of the non-Jay Carson wing of the party. Which right. Is, That's what they call them. You know, yeah. <laughs> I think the so. The non-Jay Carson, Carson wing of the yeah. Republican Party. But, but, you know, and then I said, well, maybe there could be a compromise if Democrats were willing to give Republicans something on immigration in return. And then I kind of went on from there to suggest that uh, Congress is full of narcissistic psychopaths in both parties. And, and I stand by that remark in general, though maybe full of is a bit much. And I'll amend that remark to say, I think it's likely there are a disproportionate number of narcissists and psychopaths in Congress relative to the population as a whole. I don't know if you agree with that, but uh, that's that's kind of where I'm at on that. So I I can see narcissists, psychopaths might be a little strong. Okay. Okay. Semi-psychopaths maybe, but all right. But anyway, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there are no psychopaths, (laughs) but certainly not, but, but, uh, but, by then, I, I got myself kind of worked up. And, and hey, I do that from time to time. And then I said this. I said, it's not going to be based on principles of any sort. It's going to be based on a sort of hardball. I really like more people at the border to ideally harass. And hey, if you could, you know, shoot a few brown people, that's good too. Uh, that was uncalled for, you know. Um, and, and even if there are more than a few narcissistic psychopaths uh, amongst congressional Republicans and congressional Democrats, None of them, as far as I know, is in favor of shooting brown people, as I put it. And so that was over the line. I apologize. And I really appreciate uh, our listener and supporter, the Poopsicle on Discord, calling me out on it and making me really think about it. My first reaction was sort of try to explain it, be a little bit defensive. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, you know, no, that's not okay. And I wanted to make that and my apology for that uh, front and center. So thank you, Poopsicle. And uh, I will uh, keep that in mind and try to do better in the future. All right. So let's move on to our main story, or at least our top story. On October 7th, not quite two weeks ago, Hamas launched a major surprise attack on Israel. And last week, I think Trey put together a really solid historical perspective on the conflict, which of course dates back well over a century. Uh, and he and Ken discussed the initial response of Israel. And in this last week, there have been a number of significant developments in a conflict which already thousands of deaths and, and displacement of hundreds of thousands of people in Gaza. Uh, President Biden went to Israel this week and in remarks given in Tel Aviv, he said, Hamas committed atrocities that recall the worst ravages of ISIS, unleashing, unleashing pure, unadulterated evil upon the world. There's no rationalizing it, no excusing it, period. And he also said that the U.S. would provide Israel with whatever it needed to defend itself. But he also cautioned Israel, saying, while you feel that rage, don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. And while we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. 
Then on his trip back to Washington, Biden said he'd help negotiate an agreement to open a crossing from Egypt to allow aid into Gaza. Uh, and that's, though, still being worked out between negotiators. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime in the immediate future, though, hopefully as soon as possible. And in a national address from the Oval Office on Thursday, that's yesterday, we're recording this on Friday, Biden linked the conflicts in Israel with the conflict in Ukraine, saying American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us America safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, if we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it. And he also ended up today, actually, sending an urgent budget request to Congress to support Israel and Ukraine, $106 billion in funding, including $14 billion for Israel, $61 billion for Ukraine, which, if approved, would be enough, uh, projected at least to be enough to be a full year's worth of funding, around $14 billion in immigration, $10 billion on humanitarian aid, and also some additional funding to counter China's influence in Asia and developing countries elsewhere in the world. So, Jay, there's a lot, and uh, this is even before the expected, almost inevitable, I would say, Israeli ground offensive into Gaza. Uh, I, I thought we'd start with a big question. Do you think that the Gazans are rightfully angry with Israel? And if they are, how do you think this should affect the U.S. and Israel's response to Hamas's attack? Well, I'm not, I'm not sure when you're saying rightfully angry. Are we talking about going back to original grievances or 1948? Uh, or are we talking about uh, events since the last week? I, um, I, I think you can look at it any way you want. Uh, you know, all the above. Yeah, all the above. Yeah. Um, I, I think um, it's it's fine for people of a uh, nation or region, uh, population, whatever, to, to to be angry with uh, with those it it, uh, uh, it disagrees with or uh, who it, it sees as oppressing them. Um, it's something else entirely. Uh, to say uh, to to as a result of that support uh, barbarism. Um, so I, I think I mean it's yeah. Can can you say somebody's uh, justifiably angry? I, I, I suppose. Um, but but I think the and I think Biden is actually I'll give credit where credits due. Um, um, that whatever the grievances, it 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 can never justify uh, the type of of action that. That uh, Hamas took. Um, so I, I mean, I guess I'd I'd I'd, I'd, I'd separate the you know, anger's anger's one thing. It's uh, but that uh, would work. Then that would work both ways. Then if if in responding to Hamas's uh, atrocity, Israeli forces ended up committing atrocities of their own, that would that the same logic would apply, right? Yeah. No. I I would say we're never. You're never in favor of atrocities, right? That, 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 that is um, never justified by any end. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the position that uh, Israel has been put in, um, where, you know, Hamas has discouraged people from evacuating, uh, routinely uses uh, hostages and civilians as human shields, um, uh, you know, seeks propaganda victories uh, through this sort of... Uh, that sort of thing of, of putting putting uh, civilians in harm's harm's way, um, and and understanding that there will be civilian and I, I would I want to you know draw a clear line between uh, civilian casualties, um, uh, you know collateral casualties and atrocities, right? Um, uh, if you're if you're fighting a war and you uh, you try to bomb a target and there are human shields there and they're killed. Um, uh, that those those are civilians' deaths. Um, and and that's regrettable. Um, it's a tragedy. Uh, but I don't see that as an atrocity. Um, gunning down innocent people uh, in their home and and cutting the heads off babies those those are atrocities, right? So I, I'd want to I'd want to draw that line between there that that listen certainly there are going to be uh civilian deaths probably a large number of civilian deaths uh. You know, innocent men, women, children, old people uh, killed uh, in the days going forward. 
Um, and I think that's part of the, the horrors of war. But I think it's it's also different to, than to say, um, you know, when you're intentionally seeking out to to target uh, civilians and the most vulnerable. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with that distinction. I think that's a really good one. What do you? Th- I mean, clearly Hamas. There are some there are some very intelligent people who are in charge in Hamas. They they were able to plan this thing, com- catching Israeli security forces. It seems like completely by surprise. And so you have to wonder what Hamas expected to get. They had to have res- expected this sort of response. And there's this questioning now as whether or not Israel Israel is giving them exactly what they were hoping for. What what do you think about that? Maybe. Um, you know, I I I can't, you know, read their their minds. Uh it it could be the the Hamas playbook is um sort of exactly exactly that. Uh have the Israelis come back and hit hard and they have to. Um and Hamas is counting on the support of the world for Israel to dry up in short order as soon as those those uh, civilian casualties, uh, whether accidental or or uh, intentional, uh, by you know putting them in harm's way, um, occur. Uh, and I I so again I'm I'm going to you know give credit to where credits due to uh, President Biden for for going to Israel and making a strong show of support. Um, uh, on that, I think I think most of what he said was was spot on, and and in fact, um, those are some of the better things he said throughout his entire presidency, right? Uh, in terms of American world leadership, I'm 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 with him there. Um, where I where I do think there were kind of clunkers are this this sort of um, it, it just seems uh, advising someone else in their time of um, uh. Uh, morning, as it were, and, and this, you know, to, to say, well, but, you know, uh, careful, don't go overboard. Um, I, I think that just kind of hit a false note. Well, I, I wonder um, about that. I, I'm thinking about that on a personal level. When, when you see a when you see a good friend who's I wouldn't call it morning, I would say a good friend who, for whatever reason, is enraged about something and you see him getting ready to bludgeon somebody and you can understand that feeling. But if you are a true friend. You hold him back and say, "What, Bob, what kind of I friends know, do you hang out with?" Well, Mike? You know, <laughs> yeah. I'm bludgeoning people. I, well, you know, yeah, I don't know why that came to my mind, but but you see my point, and I I like the fact that Biden also took time to acknowledge uh, Palestinian grievances. You know, he said uh, he's heartbroken by the tragic loss of Palestinian life, uh, and that you, we can't ignore the humanity of innocent Palestinians who only want to live in peace and have an opportunity. Because I think it's so easy to be so reflexively one-sided on this. And I, I feel like President Biden struck a good balance there. I see it again. That's, that's where I disagree, because I, I do think there are are things are times when uh, you ought to be reflexively one-sided, uh, and and this is this would be one of them. Um, and, and whatever whatever grievances the Gazans or the Palestinian people may have, um, now is not the time to to bring them up or address them. If you follow me, because it almost by by doing so, it it validates the strategy. See, I I guess I see what you're saying, but I just I think I have a fundamental disagreement because what I think uh, Israel or sorry, I want, what I think Hamas wants is they want a ground invasion. They want a long and bloody insurgency that's going to over time make Israeli forces look like brutal occupiers and, you know, rally world opinion against them and basically destroy any fleeting hope of a sort of a greater rapprochement between Israel and other Middle Eastern countries like we're trying to work out with with Saudi Arabia. And that's why I think uh, if we assume that Hamas leadership is smart and strategic, and I think that's a reasonable assumption, then I feel like Israel is maybe falling into the trap is a wrong way to put it, but Israel has been put into an untenable no-win situation by some very clever, very brutal people in Hamas. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I would also, but on, on the same, by the same token, um, 
I don't think the Israelis are dumb. Uh, and if, if you and I can pick up on this, uh, certainly they, they can as well. And I think that would, uh, you know, the Israelis, I think, have have done the right things. I mean, both politically and and uh, morally, ethically, by saying, hey, you need to evacuate. We're coming in and we're going to give you the time to evacuate um, uh, by not, uh, you know, you know, jumping straight out and, and hitting uh, uh, civilian populations. So I, I think I, I, I think the Israelis are, are doing well, that, that's they can to avoid yeah. to fall, falling into that trap. But to some extent, they're not going to control the, the media narrative, like what happened with the hospital. Right. I mean, um, well, that that certainly uh, may be part of it. But another part of it is there are reports that uh, Israel, com Israeli commanders say that they don't have nearly munitions stacked up, stacked up. Uh, supplies or the logistical support in place that they would have to launch a successful ground invasion yet when they believe it's going to be months, if not longer than that. And so what might look like a humanitarian pause may also have really big elements of making sure they have as much force and as much reserves amassed as possible to go in there and, and clean things out. And I think that's part of it. We also well, no, that, I mean, that's, I mean, and, and both can obviously be true. Um, but that, I guess, doesn't discount, uh, uh, you know, taking the steps of, of telling the civilian population to evacuate. Well, well, yeah. But, but yeah and so that, that right? is, I mean, otherwise you, you could just wait and tell them, Hey, stay there. We're not invading for another, you know, a couple months. And, and then, you know, sure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand the reluctance of Israel to just open up a border for humanitarian aid when the details of uh, who's going to be checking for weapons and whether or not Hamas can get control. I mean, that these are things that take some time to work out. And so I, I hope that a big part of Israel's calculus is a humanitarian calculus and and that you know and that's something you obviously believe well, even in, in, yeah, I would say even if it's not humanitarian calculus even if it's just pure political calculus uh to to hold on to you know world opinion right i mean i i still think it's the right move yeah and and, and john uh in in the comments here is joining us we have some listener supporters joining us just pointed out a similar thing saying that messaging by Israel is really key to their long-term success here and i i certainly agree with uh with that comment yeah, it's clear to me that right now we're further from a two-state solution than we've been in a while. And for folks who don't know maybe what that term means, is that idea of the Palestinians actually having uh, a state, right? And there are something like, I think, over 5 million Palestinians who are, in effect, stateless and have been stateless for generations, really, at this point. Uh, and, and I wonder, Jay, what you even think about a two-state solution, is that something that's just not even just like, is that just un totally, completely unrealistic? Or is that even a, is that a goal that we should bother even considering at this point, long term? Yeah. Um, now, look, I'm not a, a Middle East expert um, by any means, right? So I want to, I want to qualify that because Things uh, I, I'm enough of an expert to say that things there are, are extremely complicated, much more complicated than uh, are are portrayed on, on the news, or or can even easily be portrayed on the news. Right? Um, there are, you know, within the when you say the Palestinians, there are are you know <laughs> variations within uh, the Palestinians and and the, the Arab world um, uh, of where they stand uh, on on these questions and. Um, you know what, what religious traditions they're coming from, and then there's class issues and, and ethnic issues, and, and all sorts of of layers upon layers. Um, uh, that said, I I don't see there being a two state solution on the table anymore. I mean, and and we're talking, I would say, not for a generation at least. Yeah. So this this uh, but and and, and clearly, at least to me, that has been. Israel's plan all along. I mean, we take a look at the settlements in uh, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Golan Heights since that war in 1967, you know, a long time ago, right? There are something like over 700,000 Israeli settlers in the occupied territories, which the UN views as, you know, a violation of international law. These were 
I would say, pretty clearly designed to make it more difficult for there to be a Palestinian state. And I wonder if you agree with that. Um, I don't know. I think there's I think there's a couple things going on there. One, um, I, I think to to ascribe it to a a long term plan to prevent a Palestinian state. I, I don't know if that's the case. I think sometimes these things uh, are planned, and maybe they're planned for other reasons. Um, uh, so yeah, I, again, I'm not going to try to get in the head of, um, you know, what the Israelis have done for, you know, the last 50 years, um, other than to say they want, you know, a, a Jewish homeland that is secure. Um, and they have, they have seen, you know, putting settlements out there as a way to increase their security. Um, I, I think the, the, the problem, you know, with a, a two-state solution, and, and again, various variations of that have been proposed uh, by Israel a number of times, um, and uh, they've they've been typically rejected by the Palestinians who insist on the you know full right to return, um, uh, and and I think that's that's just not in the cards. And I think, look, given given what what we're seeing, um, if that other state were created, uh, would it? You know, in all likelihood, simply declare war on Israel immediately. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I guess I'm not sure how to answer that, no, that question, yeah. right? As far as what's Israel's long term strategy, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I, I think did, did, did some of these have that effect? Yeah, I think you can make that argument. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I would go further. I, I don't disagree with any of that. I'll go further to say that in general, uh, Israel has been, at least the ruling governments in Israel have been opposed to a Palestinian state for various reasons. Uh, and, and I have, uh, again, I, I want to emphasize that I've got, I, I absolutely understand how Israelis are feeling because I remember how I felt after 9-11. And so to your point, yeah, I didn't want to hear about nuanced arguments about history and that sort of thing right away, at least. But but President Biden's right. We did make some mistakes and they were mistakes that ended up being, I think, very costly. And so to the extent to which we can try to provide the benefit of our hard earned experience in in prestige, in blood to our allies in Israel, well, that's a that's doing a favor to our friends. Well, but is it? I guess I would ask about the medium. Uh, is that something that that Biden could say, could have said to Netanyahu privately? Yeah, and I'm uh, sure he has. I mean, announcing yeah. it, yeah, but rather than announcing it in public, right? I think there's a difference there. Well, I think also, you know, there's a significant portion of the public, particularly on the Democratic side, that is very sympathetic to Palestinians and feels that U.S. policy for a long time has been too reflexively pro-Israel and anti-Palestinian. And, and so I don't think that he could just not say anything about that. And in the context of his overall remarks, it was a pretty small segment of that more yeah, than the Republicans. No, and, and, yeah. and I, I think I was I was being fair when I said, look, I, I think most of what he said uh, uh, was was really good and on point. That's that's the only, again, part that I think I would say hit a wrong note for me. Gotcha. So you don't disagree that we should care about the humanity of Palestinians, just that it was not the right time yeah. to say that. Exactly. Yeah. Not the right time nor place uh, nor, nor way to present it. Um, and, 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 you know, domestically, uh, John raised a good point here that this is this puts Netanyahu in an interesting position because, of course, he was fairly unpopular. He's had his Trumpian-esque sort of legal troubles, and they've been involved in a big attempt to remake the judiciary in a way to kind of give them more authority and, and, and or give the judiciary less authority. And Netanyahu's whole thing has been very hard line, very kind of peace through strength or, you know, annihilating your enemies through strength and that sort of thing. Um, and and this right now, at least, has made him, has kind of put those concerns to the side. But long term, if Israel isn't able to effectively deal with this, it could potentially hurt him even more. Yeah, no, I agree. I think I think there may be, again, they, they formed the unity government uh, for purposes of, of this war. And I think that's smart and appropriate. Uh, down the line, I think there's going to be questions asked appropriately uh, about why didn't we see this coming? Why didn't we do more? Um, 
that sort of thing, right? And I think now is not the time to ask those questions, but those questions uh, will be and should be asked uh, later. Um, and and we'll see where you know where where Netanyahu and his his um, his uh, his people are on that, right? I mean, I think there could be the argument that because of all this other stuff, you know, they took their eye off the ball. Um, uh, I don't know that that's a fair criticism, right? Because you can you can say, look, I can argue about judicial reforms and still be, you know, have, you know, the intelligence services still ought to be able to to see, uh, you know, terrorist plots coming. Um, oh, well, just like in the U.S. when after the fact we did a very deep analysis of what happened with our failures of communications and intelligence integration, and I'm sure the Israelis will do the same thing. So m- moving back to the domestic scene. What do you think about the various pro-Palestinian groups on college campuses and other places issuing statements that put the blame on Israel? I mean, the big statement, right, was the the Harvard groups uh, saying that the blame for this was, uh, sorry, the Israeli regime is entirely responsible for all unfolding violence. Um, What was your, I mean, what's your reaction to that? And then the reaction to that sort of thing. Um, I I think that's... um you know statements like that i think are are abominable um uh i i'm deeply troubled that that's the state of our our uh discourse on campus um but to some extent this this uh it's been sort of fostered for years right there's sort of this blind eye that you're allowed to say stuff when it when it comes to israel about like that um so no i'm i'm disheartened that uh, that many students uh, would do that, that so many uh, universities would be uh, wishy-washy uh, on this and say, well, I, again, I mean, I, I imagine, like, if, think back, Mike, to if this were, were 1939, right, and uh, Kristallnacht happened, um, and and commentators said, yeah, you know, but there's, there's, you know, there's debates to be had on both sides, really. And yeah, they shouldn't have done, you know, the, the Germans shouldn't, uh, Nazis shouldn't be doing all that. But, but, you know, there, there are issues out there. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't we look at that and say that's completely morally? Uh, I, I would, um, I would disagree with the analogy kind of view. because I think uh, Kristallnacht was a very, very different thing and the 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 jews that were the the horrible stuff that happened to those jews those folks were not in any way shape or form could be considered colonialist oppressors of a people no no but not but that's certainly not the view that that uh the nazis would have had and that's not the view that that others uh uh on the right but it's not uh, an unreasonable view i'm saying that and so i i I understand what you're saying I'm just rejecting your analogy. I mean, because especially right. in life. I mean, I would I would argue that it's tough to say that the, you know, the the babies that were beheaded were were colonizers or or you know even would even right. That. But but that's not what that's not what that statement was was saying. That statement was saying none of this would have happened had Israel not had the policies that it had uh, concerning Gaza. Now that may be an entirely wrong statement. I disagree with that largely. Almost entirely. Certainly, I I disagree wholly. Let's put it this way: that I, I would say a lot of these folks, if you go back to 1948, they wanted to kill Jews before they 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 got there. Um, so, yeah. What? Sorry, you lost me I, there. What I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying, I think the the anti-Semitism that you see in Hamas is gotcha. is something okay. is not something that just came up because of Israeli policies. It's something that's always been there. Uh, perhaps Israeli policies haven't helped it, but in some in some respects, perhaps the Israelis' policies were a reaction to it. Um, there's an element. So, of, I, I think it's it's reasonable to say there's an element of that there. But I mean, but moving back to the the U.S. context here, I mean, you can you can say I think back to when you and I were college students. This was in a very different era. You remember that I said and did some things that you were like, "Wow, Mike." You need to just because I was I was well to the right of you, and yes, yeah, I said and did some stupid things. You 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 testify to this, right? Some were pretty funny. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but but the point being is that there was no there was no like in the Harvard case, nobody funded a billboard truck driving by. Baldwin Wallace's campus with my name and picture on it. Uh, in this case, this, this really happened with these uh, with these 
people who signed the group, students who were not necessarily. I couldn't find anybody to do it. Well, I mean, um, I tried. <laughs> you know I mean? We were on the same side back there. But, but I mean, think about this, right? Well, this conservative group funded a, a, a billboard truck to drive around the area of Harvard's campuses with saying Harvard's assigned lead, saying Harvard's leading anti-Semites and the names and pictures of the kids who not necessarily directly signed the statement, but were a part of groups that signed that statement. I mean, to me, that's pretty beyond the pale as well i would i would i would think so but let's also i i'd say if, if we're talking about you know back in the day um you never you were never um celebrating groups that that uh you know murdered civilians that's uh, true in particularly cruel ways right sure. I mean, you would you would argue about you know tax policy and and you know so and so and so is too squishy on on defense and uh, I think there were you know times about uh, we ought to bomb the hell out of uh, X Y or Z, um, but I don't think you ever endorsed uh, mass murder um, uh, like is happening now. So no, do I do I let's put this or do I think it do I think it's a fair or effective tactic? Probably not. No. Um, uh, do I understand why conservative groups feel that way? Uh, yeah. Um, that, that someone, um, you know, again, a student, a student who uses the wrong pronoun, uh, can be subject to disciplinary action and, and expelled. Uh, a student who advocates in, in, in support of, of, uh, really barbarous stuff, um, uh, you know, is, you know, gets a free ride. But, but I, let's I be clear here. Uh, let's be clear here. It's not these students. I mean, the statement isn't advocating for killing children, for beheading children. It's saying that this violence had a cause and it is not the fault of the people. That's it's I mean, I'm, it's an important distinction to make here. The statement didn't say we we were gladdened. At the death of Israeli civilians, or now something oh, yeah. like that would I be mean, not maybe not maybe not that statement, but certainly some of the protests and some of the marches have have made that point. Sure, and I'm not I'm not talking about I'm not going to get into individuals at marches or protests when I when I don't have access to that. I'm talking about the written statement that that the written was statement, the focus right. of that, where it's something concrete. And so it seems to me that, and maybe it's just part of our larger political culture or lack thereof at this day where uh, these days when when uh, it's simply impossible to show any sort of sympathy for the enemy right and you have to take sides very i mean something like uh, representative Tlaib, right who immediately blamed israel for the hospital bombing and and refused to you know push or to recant or to moderate her statement in any way even when the best available intelligence evidence to this point suggests that it wasn't, in fact, Israeli forces that bombed that hospital, but, you know, uh, an errant uh, rocket or something from Palestinian Hamas forces. And so that's the sort of thing I think we see too much of on both sides these days. So, no, look, I am I I would say I stand against, you know, cancel culture across the board. Um, uh, so, no, and I, I don't like the idea of doxing people, especially people who just happen to be in groups, uh, signatories to the letter. Eh, That's maybe I mean, different. Maybe more fair but, game. But I don't know about um, the whole doxing thing, especially in an, in an age when that sort of thing very commonly, it seems like, leads to death threats and, and other sorts of, of actions. That really wasn't the case, I think, when that occasionally happened, you know, a generation ago or so. No, no, not, not at all. Um, it was a weird thing. I mean, nobody, yeah, typically a generation ago, no one would really care what uh, goofy kids said or did on campus. You know what I mean? There's that too. Yeah. So before we move on, any other thoughts on this? Anything that we that that I uh, didn't bring up that we missed before we get on to domestic politics? Oh, I suppose there's all kinds of stuff. But, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're we'll have we'll have this to talk about for a while. So. Well, then let's turn to domestic politics. And the top story there would be that the House of Representatives still doesn't have a speaker after Jim Jordan, the leading Republican vote getter, couldn't wrangle a majority in three votes. In the first one, 20 Republicans vote for someone else. Then after that, 22 voted after someone else. And then just earlier today, before the third vote, 
Jordan held a news conference where he, it was kind of interesting. He talked about the Wright brothers and uh, America, his favorite Bible verse. And there was a lot going on there, you know, but, and then said he would continue his candidacy despite what seemed to be a near certainty of his losing more ground in the third vote. And that's exactly what happened. He lost three more votes. And then hours after that, and shortly before we started recording, uh, it's reported that an internal House Republican caucus vote on whether or not Jordan should continue ended up with a majority saying, no, he shouldn't continue seeking the position of speaker. And if it's not Jordan, it's unclear who can actually get to 217 of those 221 Republican votes. Uh, initially, there was a thought of maybe giving more authority to acting speaker Patrick McHenry. And by the way, I should point out, that's one of my all-time favorite names for a Republican right. representative. Right. Give, give, give him McLiberty or give him McDuff. <laughs> there you go. But it looks like that's a non-starter at this point. There are too many objections raised to it, some from McHenry himself, uh, though it doesn't really seem likely, at least yet, that Republicans are going to turn to Democrats for support because that would involve a number of concessions that they're, I think, nowhere near ready to uh, seriously consider. So, Jay, are you surprised at all that how this has played out to this point? And, and also, where do you see things going from here? Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I really, I don't know why you're having me on the podcast is because I'm, I'm, I'm at a loss, right? Uh, if this is going, if this was uh, my area of expertise, uh, I, I can't tell you what's going on. I don't get um, uh, why it, it, at this point you just don't, don't pick a speaker. I mean, you know, look, I <laughs> to my mind, it's Scalise say he'd be fine. Jordan be fine. Um, um, uh, you know, we just, you just need to get somebody. This, this isn't, this isn't picking a Pope, right? Um, this, <laughs> um, uh, hell, he's probably not even going to be speaker in, in two <laughs> years. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, I it's, it, so to me, I, I think that we're getting to the point of uh, someone's better than no one. Um, and I, I don't get, uh, what these, uh, the, what, what, what the fights are over at this point anymore. Right. I, I um, think, I think I do. I, I think a lot of the moderate Republicans feel that a small rump group of Freedom Caucus folks have for too long exercised outsized influence. And especially when, the conference decided on Scalise in a conference vote, and then a whole bunch of those folks refused to back him on the floor when they had decided. And then they said, oh, no, we're going to back Jordan. And then I think those those same moderates said, well, why should we go with your guy? It's he he found he co-founded the group that's the cause of all this post politics of hostage taking and so forth. And so if we're going to pick anyone, we're not going to pick a guy like that. If anyone should learn how to compromise. It's you folks in the far right of the Freedom Caucus and not us. And I think that's a reasonable point. Yeah, fair, fair enough. But it, it, at some point, you got to have enough votes for somebody. And I, uh, my point is you're better off with uh, with somebody than nobody, even if it's a somebody that you don't like. I mean, you can always go back and try to uh, uh, rub the Freedom Caucus's nose in it later, or or lessons learned later, or something. But, um, but you can't. Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think you can because I think I think finally the moderates are saying, you know what, we've given ground and given ground and given ground to these people, and we're not going to let them run our caucus. They're not. There are there are a number of them, but there aren't that many of them. At least not that many intransigent numbers of right. them and we're not going to give them but a win on this them, and that's the problem and unless you can you can move you know whatever four or five uh, of those folks um you just don't have the numbers so and, and then at some point maybe it I, becomes... I'm, I'm not i'm not advocating for uh uh or saying i i don't i disagree or i i, I don't understand why they might not might be motivated to do that i'm just saying um at some point, uh, it, it's a little, um, you know, like organizing the, the deck tiers on the Titanic type thing, right? I don't, I don't disagree um, with that, but I, I don't think that if you're going to find somebody who is a who is somewhat acceptable to 217 out of 221 Republicans, 
you don't pick somebody who has a, I would argue, a well-deserved reputation as a, a bomb-throwing, conspiracy theory-pushing, you know, John, John Boehner, former speaker, called him a legislative terrorist. This is not a guy who is well-positioned to be a moderating influence to get that sort of support. And so I think the very, the very fact of putting him forward is basically trying to rub the majority of your caucus's face in that. And if, if I'm a moderate Republican, I think at this point I say, well, the hell with you guys. Right. And they did. And they did. And so what happens now, do you think? I mean, I know you said. I don't know. You know <laughs> that's, that's what I'm saying. I got I got nothing. Um, but I mean, obviously, this can't go on forever. I mean, at some point, they're going to. And I guess I'm wondering, uh, do you think, and, and I won't hold you to this because you already said you have no clue. And I think at this point, anyone who says they have a clue is full of it. To me, this talk about getting some Democrats on board with a really moderate ish Republican in exchange for some concessions. I think that's just a negotiating tactic. And if the Freedom Caucus folks feel like they uh, try to get get enough of those folks over right into supporting uh, a Republican speaker. But, you know, if this goes on for two, three more weeks, all of a sudden the rubber starts to meet the road and you got to do something. And I wonder, can you conceive of a world in which the Republican, the majority of the Republican caucus would say, you know what, we'd rather deal, we'd rather find five Democratic votes than, or, you know, however many Democratic votes, than get those votes from the Freedom Caucus. I, I can conceive of that, that world of, of five. Um, I mean, this is, this happened a number of times in the Ohio House uh, just over the past, uh, the past decade or so. Um, uh, in, in, in neither, in none of the cases where was the outcome really good. Um, and in that case, it, in that case, it wasn't simply, uh, five Democrats. It was sort of the entire Democratic caucus joining with a, um, uh, part of the Republican caucus. Uh, and, and, you know, they probably elected Larry Householder, um, who if people yeah. don't follow these things <laughs> is now serving time. Um, uh, so, um, and now we've got a, a, a new uh, speaker who was sort of of the same, uh, there was the same sort of bipartisan. Um, uh, now again, there are any ethical hits on him yet, but that it's you know speakership be kind of paralyzed. Um, so no, I I don't. I mean, maybe you can have a couple moderate Democrats who would who would come across, but I don't think. Um, I I just I don't see Democrats breaking ranks to do that. Well, I think uh, there yeah, might party be dis- some. Party discipline is always is always much better among Democrats than Republicans. Yeah, I, I mentioned five. There, there are, I believe, five Democrats who are from districts that were carried by Trump, and maybe you can find a, a few more. But I think it would be difficult to to get those votes. But we we certainly can't be speakerless forever. But you know, it, it made me think a lot about. Jim Jordan, and he was a, a guest on the show. We recently re-aired the interview that you did. I, yeah, I heard that. Yes. Yeah, with yeah, him back that. in 2017, right? And and you know, here's I want to get your take um, because it seems here, here's my take on Jim Jordan. I, if our expectation of legislators is that they legislate. Uh, that's not been Jordan's M.O., right? He's been in the House since 2006. He has, by almost any measure that's ever been devised about legislative effectiveness, whether it's number of bills, bills that have been co-sponsored, anything you can think of, he's been like rock bottom for a long time, right? And so it seems to me that Jim Jordan isn't seriously interested, isn't interested in seriously legislating. He isn't at all interested in working with Democrats. I feel like based on everything I know about him from his career in Congress, he wants to make a lot of noise, wants to blow things up. He's got a a penchant for conspiracy theories, which I believe, which I feel like came out at the end of your interview with him, even back then in 2017. You know, he's a guy who said he didn't know how he could be convinced that Trump didn't actually win the election. I, I, I feel like he represents so much of what is wrong with American politics today. I, and I, I bet you have a very different view of him. And so I don't want to just 
I don't feel like it's trashing him. I'm just basing my opinion on what I can see. Maybe you can offer a different perspective. So, um, yeah, I mean, for those who did listen to the interview or don't know, I mean, I, I worked with Jim Jordan um, early in my career, earlier in his career, um, uh, when he was a, a freshman representative in uh, the Ohio legislature. Um, and I, you know, I, I describe him as at least he's a friend, uh, right? I mean, we don't hang out uh, much anymore or anything like that. But, he's kind of a busy um, guy, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, as am I, Mike. But <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, he was he was someone who I uh, I had a good deal of respect for uh, for what he did in the legislature. He was a um, I'll, I'll say this, uh, you know, throughout the time that I knew him, he's a decent human being to. Uh, to people he came in contact with and, you know, good to his staff and to, you know, that, that sort of thing. Right. He's um, so I, I'm coming at from a little bit of that perspective. And also, I think I, I relayed the story maybe a couple weeks ago about the representative who was one time charged with, uh, you know, you haven't done anything all these years you've been office, you know, haven't introduced any bills. And his response was uh, bills. Hell, I play defense. Um, um, and I'll tell you, actually, that was the guy who Jim Jordan challenged in the primary. <laughs> so uh, I think I think Jordan kind of comes from that that same position of I'm here to play defense. Uh, I, I'm not about introducing bills or or legislating. I'm about stopping stuff from happening. Um, now, you can take a couple different views of that uh, and say, well, that's really not a good attitude to have. Or you can say, look, that. Maybe that is the, the good attitude to have, right? The, the um, you know, standing athwart history, uh, uh, shouting stop type thing, right? Um, and regardless, I think there's a role for for that person um, in a in a legislature. The ancient Roman Roman Senate had uh, Cato, right? You know, who would um, it was just kind of <laughs> that sort of naysayer, always, you know. I guess, yeah, against I, yeah. everything. I, I see what um, you're saying, and I I agree, but I would find it easier to agree if Jim Jordan were more of a consistent figure, like say a Thomas Massey, who I agree disagree with on so much, but I I really respect Thomas Massey's integrity, even if I agree disagree with him very much on policy, right? Um, and Jim Jordan, it seems to me, especially in the last couple of years. He has made a conscious decision to cozy up the leadership. He said a lot of things trying to get the speaker's gavel. Oh, yes, I want to push through uh, this and that and other things, and I'm interested in working with people. And so it seems to me, and again, I don't know the man, but it seems to me that based on what I see from his actions, that Jim Jordan is willing to be whatever it takes to get as much power as he can get for himself. And if there's more to it than that, I have not seen it as of yet. And that's why I, I have I have a great deal of respect for you, but I have a lot of trouble having any respect for Jim Jordan. So I mean I, I can I can say the only thing I guess I could way to respond to that is uh the, the Jim Jordan that that I knew um back in the day wasn't the same like populist Trumpian type. Um now again things were times were different and and it was maybe an easier um yeah I hear easier you. to stand just on pure principle right um uh so it, it's it's hard to say there and um i i suppose you could you could look at it as who is the real jim jordan the real jim jordan is who he started his career out as and so when he saw the populist trumpian wave he latched onto it as a way to get into a position where he could finally become the person that he is powerful enough to do good things. But that, and sometimes that works, but that sort of, uh, that sort of thinking oftentimes is very convenient for people who, you know, give up principles temporarily, right. To try to, and, and, and sometimes people can, well, that's, and that's not, that's certainly not, something that's uncommon in politics, right? That's that's kind of the par for the course, right? Is that it, it, the, the people who are exceptional uh, are the ones who who will say, no, I'm, I'm not going to give up principle for power. Um, you know, the idea, the, the temptation, right, is always the, well, if I, if I can just get, 
you know, this next thing, then I'll be able to do uh, X, Y, and Z. And that's sort of the, uh, you know, again, that's, there's, you get into a weird, um, I guess it, it's sort of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A paradox of, of conservative leadership, right? Um, that, that if you're real conservative, you kind of don't really want leadership. You know, you, you would, you eschew that you, you know, it, it, you view uh, power in its, as, itself as, as corrupting and, um, but, you know, but, but uh, yet you want to try to get in a position so that you can, you know, stop, stop other people from gaining that power. And the only way to do that is to get in power yourself. Um, yeah. In which case you uh, end up you getting know, corrupted more yeah, often than not. Therein yeah. lies the problem. Right. Yeah. And I, and I guess maybe the, uh, the, the response, uh, you know, this is the philosophical response sort of is, is to say, well, then you just, you know, don't get too attached to people, uh, uh, put your faith in ideas. Right. That sounds Knowing like a that, horrible that, way to win elections. <laughs> I gotta say. Right. Exactly. Well, again, I mean, yeah. Um, uh, but, but no, I mean, taking a realistic view that, uh, uh, all, all people are fallible. Um, and, uh, you're never, and, and I think in general, Republicans probably do do a better job of that, uh, at least pre Trump, um, than Democrats, right? There was always the whole, um, the thing about Obama, uh, and the, you know, getting the thrill down your leg and all this kind of stuff. And, um, uh, Republicans typically didn't have, uh, view politicians as, as a messiah, right? Um, it's sort of they're you know all right a capable manager and the the lesser of two evils and that sort of thing. And then with Trump, you um, literally had golden statues <laughs> raised to the yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. That's yeah. why I said pre-Trump. Exactly. No, I, was, I agree with you. Pre-Trump, pre-Trump thing. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, it was a again the Republicans came out of the the Whig party. Um, uh, the Whigs who were were anti-royal, the original Whigs, anti-royalist, right? Um, and then the the American Whigs. Uh, uh, who viewed Andrew Jackson as sort of that, you know, uh, pretending to royalty kind of kind of thing? Um, um, yeah, there was that that Whiggish tradition, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's wasn't there in uh, in 2016 and or 2020. So yeah, you know, maybe a little bit in 2016, but not 2020. In the end, I don't. Uh, assuming this gets worked out within the next three weeks or so. I don't think it matters all that much. And I, I think, I think there's a lot. Of, I, yeah. yeah. Because I, I want to point, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. And that's, that was kind of my point as well. Look, somebody's better than nobody. Yeah. And I think we'll eventually see somebody and we'll end up. Or maybe I should say anybody's better. Than yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, not, well, if we want to go with anyone, let's go at the top vote getter, Hakeem Jeffries. You know, I'll, I'll be behind that, but I don't think you would say he's better than nobody, but the point. No, I'm But in terms of the Republicans. Yeah. 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 But I think, you know, for, for your average voter, this is not going to, this is not going to be an issue in, in November or even in the primary election so much. And so, It'll all go. It's it's almost been kind of amusing to me. I got to say to see the the reactions on X and some of the media reactions to this being the biggest thing in the world. It, it's, it's uh, the New York Times has been especially to me comical on this. I feel like they they must have there must be some sort of a staff directive that you cannot talk about the House Republican Party without inserting the word chaos. Somewhere into the yeah. sentence, you know, and it's like, yeah, is it chaos? Really? I mean, I don't know. But at the same time, they'll talk about Congress at a standstill. So it's like a chaotic standstill. So <laughs> I don't know. Just it's, it's in a way, it's so much an inside the beltway kind of thing. And I think the only reason, the only way it matters longer term is if the person who ends up as speaker is somebody who actually is hostile towards foreign aid, right? Who says, I'm not going, I'm going, not going to bring Ukraine aid to the floor. And I'm going, we talked about this last time. You take a look at Jordan's record. He has not had a good record on Ukraine aid. And now maybe some of that's, as you talked about before, maybe that's because free votes, it's easy to do that when you're not in leadership, but that's not necessarily the kind of thing you want to roll the dice on so much, but that, well, and again, like like I said, through throughout his his career, even in Ohio and uh, uh, through his congressional career, even though he moved up the ladder, he was always sort of a, a you know backbench bomb thrower type, right? That's that's where he thrived on. That's what he saw his role as being. Um, 
and I think in this culture, th- th- those are the sort of people who those sort of people, sort of people who end up advancing the quick. I mean, he's one of the best fundraisers in Congress because I think of that his of his facility with that sort of thing. But but honestly, I I feel more comfortable with the Patrick McHenry McHenry types. And I guess you you would probably do you would probably feel more comfortable with them as well temperamentally or the John Banner types. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that the other thing that that strikes me is um, of the Jim Jordan that I know or Jim Jordan that I knew. What's however you want to put it. Um, I think he would be miserable as speaker. Yeah, I yeah exactly. Um, Maybe you could talk because, about I mean, why being, being speaker. Point. Yeah, being speaker it not only entails policy stuff, but there's a whole lot of just administrative stuff, right? And uh, again, it's all about rounding people up and and kind of making compromises. And it's it's it would be sort of not at all what um what what he would he would like to do. Uh, he seems to be and again through the time I've known him, much more about he'd rather be able to go out there and uh, uh, go down in a ball of flames on principle, right? Um uh than than to to have to give up you know some of that principle in order to to score something so um I yeah mean, it, i think he'd be yeah. it'd be miserable at like putting together coalitions and um that sort of thing i you know i was part i was a little bit surprised not not a lot surprised but a little bit surprised when he decided not to run for senate last time around but maybe he was eyeing the next cycle, I thought, because I feel like that's a much better position for him. It's, you know, not so much a backbencher, but somebody, if he wants to get more power, right, the speakership, I agree, doesn't seem very ill-suited to him. Chairman of the judiciary, that that seems like very well-suited yeah, yeah, to yeah. him. And I feel like... In a, I mean, he... he and the word, the word on the street that, that I had heard um, back... Um, back when they were picking a speaker, was that Jordan wasn't interested for that that very reason? He wanted to be chairman of judiciary, and and, and that that seems to be a perfect fit for what he is best at. If if you want, if you're 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 a Democrat, you look at the other way, but it fits with his proclivities and inclinations and so forth. And so maybe this works out for the best. Uh, I don't know if we end up with Steve Scalise or or somebody else. I should point out John Boehner got one vote on the second ballot there, which was. That would be an interesting choice as well. I though I think he's he's, he's uh, orange rested and ready. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So anyway, all right. Any other thoughts on the on the speaker race? Uh, no. Again, like I said, <laughs> okay. I I I got no clue. But I predict we will have a speaker before the continuing resolution runs out. Uh, that's uh, and within I would say within within a couple of weeks. That's my bold prediction. What do you think? I'll end with a prediction. I, I think that's uh, that's probably a good prediction. Okay. So not maybe not a bold prediction, but a reasonable prediction. Well, all right. Well, we, we're about out of time. We haven't gotten to uh, a whole bunch of things. Uh, some guilty pleas uh, in the Trump, uh, or not the Trump, but the Georgia racketeering case involving the 2020 election. Uh, Senator Robert Menendez, who is just... Uh, all about being an agent of Egypt, apparently. We'll talk about that. Uh, presidential fundraising numbers, uh, Joe Biden's media strategy, if you want to call it that. A lot of stuff we didn't get to now, but we will get to on the midweek show. That's one of the advantages you get of being a supporter of the politics, guys, is you get the full midweek show. And so we hope to consider becoming a supporter. You don't just get that. You get ad-free episodes of that, like I said, that full-length midweek show, access to our Discord group, uh, and even the opportunity a couple of listeners took this week to listen in and comment as we record the show every week. And if you're interested in that, you can- And I apologize for the delay in that, because I had to-, to Fight know, for freedom. Pause and, and go fight for freedom. That's important. Uh, for a while, while we had everybody else hanging on the line. As so. I said, freedom isn't free. You know, <laughs> you don't want to know Jay's billable rate anyway. But, but <laughs> <laughs> if you want to find out more about any of that, go to patreon.com slash politics guys, or you can support us on Venmo or at politics guys or through PayPal. We always put the links in our show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And if you want to get that full length midweek show, but you can't support us financially right now, send me an email. Mike at politicsguys.com, and I will make that happen for you. And whether you're a supporter or not, it really does help us out if you could subscribe 
rate and review us on whatever podcast app you use, as well as sharing episodes on social media. And if you want to get, get in touch with us, we love hearing from listeners. There are lots of ways to do that. Email, mail at politicsguys.com. There's the Discord channel I already mentioned, as well as Facebook and X, and you'll find links to those in our show notes. And finally, as always, a very special thanks to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We hope you'll join us.